Good morning. It's nice to see all of you. Um, please join me in John chapter 17. If you're visiting, thank you for joining us this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to raise your hand and we'll bring one to you. We'd love to have one in your lap so that you can look along. And please feel free to keep this Bible if you don't have one. We are in John 17 this morning. We, as a church family, are continuing to follow Jesus together through the Gospel of John. We've been inching our way through John chapter 17. And this morning is part two from last week. Last week, the title was Live Sanctified. And we dealt with some big Bible words and Bible concepts last week. The subtitle this morning is Live Sent and Sanctified, or Live Sanctified and Sent, rather. And so we're going to do a second pass through John 17, verses 13 to 19. So I'm going to set God's word before us and then look to him in prayer. John chapter 17, verses 13 to 19. Jesus is in the middle of praying and he says, But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. Well, this is Christ's prayer. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is a joy to approach your throne, knowing that these ancient words of Jesus 2,000 years ago, this prayer of God the Son to God the Father, is a prayer that will prove true. And the joy that we have to be able to listen in on this prayer, this intercession taking place within the Trinity, to understand, Lord, your heart and mind for us your followers, and friends in this world. And so, Lord, as we do so often, we come before you and we ask and pray that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, which is everything, and that you, by your Spirit, would shine the light on your word so that we would understand it, and not just know it, but we would embrace it with our whole life. And everything that Jesus says here would prove true in our lives. Lord, we pray that because of Jesus' life that was sinless, His death that atoned for our sins on the cross, His resurrection from the grave, that by faith would be made effective in our lives this morning. Lord, save the lost, comfort the hurting, build your church, we pray. So Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable In your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, Amen. As a Christian, I I wonder if you have ever wondered why Jesus saved you, but then left you in the world, rather than bring you home to him. So if God's chief end and goal is to glorify himself by bringing us together as a family in eternity for all time to be with him, why is he waiting 2,000 years? And why has he, when he saved you, does not bring you right home to his presence? Have you ever wondered why Jesus saved you but left you in the world rather than bring you home? And related to that, if, if you've spent any time in the Bible, you know that the devil is a malevolent and wicked and powerful being. And if the evil one is so powerful, how is it that you don't su- succumb to him? How do you not 
be crushed by him. In other words, what is Jesus's purpose for saving us, but then leaving us in the world? Again, it's been 2,000 years. He hasn't come back yet. He is coming back, but he hasn't come back yet. What is God up to in all of these things and more? Well, as we continue listening to Jesus, pray to the Father. Here in John 17, it's the end of this upper room farewell discourse. It is coming to the end of his public ministry. We'll turn the page and Jesus is going to go out to the garden. He's going to be arrested and tried and the crucifixion and all that's going to follow. As Jesus closes his ministry, he offers this high priestly prayer. And in this high priestly prayer this morning, in verses 13 and 19, Jesus will reveal to us why we are still here. How it is that we are kept from the evil one. And what his purposes are for your life personally and our life corporately. So if you're taking notes this morning, the sermon comes to us in three parts. Here they are. Number one, live sanctified and sent with Jesus' joy in the midst of hate. That's verses 13 and 14. After we look at those two verses, we'll move to our second point. Live sanctified and sent, kept by the Father from the evil one. That's verses 15 and 16. And then we'll close our time in the third point. Live sanctified and sent, continuing Christ's mission. And for that, we'll look again at verse 18. That's where we're going this morning. So first point, to summarize verses 13 and 14, live sanctified and sent, with Jesus' joy in the midst of hate. Look at verse 13 again. So Jesus is praying, and as he continues in this prayer, he says, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak, meaning the whole upper room discourse that we've spent all these months in, these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Well, here in these two verses, once again, for the third time in this farewell address, now in this prayer, Jesus returns us to the eternal contrast of joy and hate. You see that word joy in verse 13. You see that word hate in verse 14. We have seen these words before, but now once again, here they are. And the believer, not just in the next age, but right now. Here's, here's what you need to see. When Jesus is praying to the Father, as He prepares to leave, remember the disciples' hearts? Remember, they are, their hearts are troubled, and we learned that that word a long time ago is like troubled water. It's the shaking of a water. Their hearts are uh, shimmering like a leaf in the wind because they have heard that Jesus is leaving. That would seem like the worst news in the world. And yet Jesus, as they are troubled in heart, in hearing some very difficult teaching, Jesus is saying these things to put joy in their hearts. And he is saying these things to put joy in our hearts. But there is also hate. So we've looked at this before, but what I want you to see is that when Jesus says that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves, that's not just a future promise. Well, oh yeah, I know that when we enter into glory, we enter the new heavens and new earth, that we will have joy fully. That is true. But what Jesus is saying here is that his words are designed to put his joy in our hearts now in a world full of hate. But here's what's amazing. Did you see whose joy Jesus asks the Father to put in our hearts. 
He is not asking for you to cultivate joy in your own heart. No, what he says is, I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy in themselves. So Jesus' aim is that the joy that he himself has would be rooted and married in your own soul. What is joy? Biblical joy is not merely a happy feeling, though often it is. That's true. It is a feeling, but it's not the same as happiness. And our mistake is to think that joy is only a happiness. And that happiness for us is something that happens that's circumstantial. Meaning that if circumstances are going good, you're happy. If circumstances are going bad, you're sad or mad or whatever it is. But the joy that Jesus gives us that's his and the way the Bible defines joy is it's not only a happy feeling, but biblical joy is not determined primarily by your feelings or circumstances. Biblical joy is determined by truth. So happiness is circumstantial, but joy in the Bible does not waver and wane based on your circumstances or your feelings because joy is not based on your circumstances and feelings. Joy is based on God's truth. It's joy is determined from our vantage point by faith in God's promises. It's determined by what God says. That's why Jesus says, I have spoken these things in the world so that they have my joy in them. So the connection point is Jesus' word is the cause of his joy in our hearts. So as strange as it sounds, biblical joy then can exist at the exact same time as deep sorrow, suffering, and trials. So when Jesus prays that you would have joy in your life and that we would have joy together, I would describe biblical joy as this. It is a happiness flowering in God's promises. Biblical joy is a happiness flowering in God's promises, even in trials. Biblical joy is living right now as if God's future promises are a reality in the present. Biblical joy is living, trusting God's word as if God's future promises are a reality in the present. Joy in the Bible looks at what God has said, looks at what God has done. And even though we wait for the final consummation of those promises, we live as if those promises have already come to pass. Jesus had joy. Even though he was the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, the Bible tells us that Jesus had joy. For example, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here it is. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we have to ask the question, what is Jesus' joy? What is Jesus' joy that he asks the Father to put in your heart so that it flowers as a happiness in God's promises? And Hebrews 12 just told us in verse 2, 12, 2, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 2 in Hebrews 12 shows us that Jesus had a joy before him that was such a joy to have. 
It was such a joy for Jesus to have that the pathway to receiving that joy was through his cross. Jesus, living a perfect and sinless life in our place, going on to the cross, the most excruciating, that's where the word comes from, excruciating form of death, Jesus went to the cross to have nails driven through his ankles and his wrists and to die by suffocation with a crown of thorns on his head, having been, um, his uh, back filleted and more. All of that was a pathway of joy set before him. There was something that the cross was worth for Jesus, and it was a joy. But what was that joy? That joy was, most importantly, as we see in John 17, finishing the mission that the Father gave to him. It was Jesus' joy to obey the Father, and the Father planned the cross, so the Son went to the cross. But the joy not only includes obeying the Father, Jesus' joy includes dying for you. To redeem a company of saints washed white in His blood, His suffering in our place so that we wouldn't have to go to the cross, that was a joy for Jesus. Jesus was had a happiness in His soul to suffer in your place. Praise God. Jesus had a joy that the cross was worth to gain that joy, to glorify the Father, gather a people for Himself, and then as Hebrews 12, 2 closes, so that He is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There was a joy that Jesus, as the King of the universe, King of kings and Lord of lords, King of the rulers of the earth, as Revelation 1 says, that was a joy for Jesus. So, Here's the point. When Jesus prays right here, I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus wants you to share in his joy of dying for you. Jesus wants you to share in his joy of perfectly loving the father. Jesus wants you to share in his joy of becoming now the king of the universe. And the joy that he has, he wants you to have. The gospel puts Jesus' joy of pleasing the Father, performing the gospel, and saving us into the expanses of our own hearts. You know what that means? It means that we have a tendency to meditate on the wrong things. We rehearse and nurse our problems and trials and sorrows and sufferings, but that's not rehearsing and recycling the truth of the gospel in our own souls. So that doesn't cultivate and remind us of the joy we already have in Jesus. This means that we are to rehearse in our minds Jesus' joy of dying for me and for you. Jesus' joy in loving the Father perfectly and I want to do the same, and so do you. Jesus' joy in now becoming the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we bow to Him. We rehearse those gospel truths in our minds, and that's what flowers Jesus' joy in our own hearts. We have a joy now that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet we await the consummation when faith becomes sight, and we're in God's presence in whose presence is the fullness of joy, and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 1611. This is the joy of a Christian with an this is the joy a Christian has with an unbelieving spouse, still loving them for Jesus and holding fast to Jesus' word. This is this is the student who has a joy in their soul and is ridiculed in class, docked a grade for holding fast to their joy in Jesus and his triumph in the gospel. This is the word-centered joy of the person evangelizing on campus, at work, down the street, at the mission, across the street, and yet being ridiculed and rejected for Jesus. The joy of an aged saint in the twilight of life using all the strength they have, even in pain, to finish their race for Jesus, loving young people well, evangelizing and discipling them. 
In other words, Jesus left us in this world. And he armed you with gospel joy to persevere in this world. It's this gospel joy that's meant to fuel us in the various trials and sufferings we face. And the connection point, as I said a few moments ago in verse 14, is the word of God. When Jesus said, I have given them your word, that means that as we saw last week, that when we feast on God's word and you cut us and we bleed Bible, it's the truth of God's word in us that fuels the gospel from all the scriptures is what fuels us to run with endurance in this world. And the contrast, as Jesus prays, is this gospel joy that is an alien joy, meaning it comes from outside of us, in us, Jesus' joy, but the contrast is the hatred of the world. The world hates us. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Meaning, the world system with its beliefs, desires, patterns, philosophies, politics, and more, the way the world thinks and works is not based on God's word. But when we become Christians, we're filled with God's word. So this connection point of being hated by the world is that we are word-filled. The world hates the word and therefore hates Jesus and hates us. Because the world has its own opposition and ruinous lies and its own false word. So Jesus, as we saw earlier, that our mere existence glorifies God. So our presence in this world, then, think about this. We are word-filled people. We have gospel joy that motivates us. Joy in Jesus' death. Joy in Jesus' love of the Father. Joy in Jesus' kingship. And that now means, because we are word-filled, when we speak, we have a vocal witness. Because as word-filled people, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks... And so we speak God's word, we think God's word, we have a vocal and visual testimony in this world, because that's how the world hates us. That's, it's because we're shaped by the Bible's way of thinking, not the world's way of thinking. And that's why we see such increasing heat and hostility against gender and sexuality and marriage and more, not to mention the fact that God commands... All people everywhere to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says everybody is wrong and he is right and bow down to him and believe his gospel. That's not a message the world likes to hear. And yet our vocal testimony, because of the joy that flowers in us, we not only preach the gospel, but we speak all of God's truth in love And the world wants to mute us from that. To cancel us, to block us on Facebook, or whatever it is. I say a visual presentation because not only of how we live our lives, at work, at school, at home, and more, how we order our households, but right now, there is something taking place when the company of saints across the world on this Lord's Day When all around the world, when we gather together, this is a political witness that Jesus is king and not Caesar. This is a political witness that we are gathering together to say that we love the truths of the gospel. Most important that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and then all the truths tied to that constellation. We love what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality and gender and more. We love what the Bible says about work and and the household and more and more and more. All that the Bible says, we love it. And the fact that we gather is itself a testimony to the world that we believe what the book says. And because of that, it's a witness. Just us in here singing. The windows aren't open right now. But our neighbors and the people walking across the street 
and the people walking around. Just our singing reverberates out of these walls and is, an, is a vocal and are simply a visual witness that we have joy in Jesus and that joy moves us to witness for him. The point here is that in a world of opposition and hate, Jesus promises his joy now as we have faith in him, even in persecution. Jesus' point is that we would have his joy to fuel us for the next point. Point number two, live sanctified and sent, kept by the Father from the evil one. Look now at verses 15 and 16. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. You might might need to underline that in your Bible. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but our focus here, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We're going to pick up the first part of verse 15 in the final point. But for now, glance back up at verses 11 and 12 we saw a few weeks ago in John 17. And tune your ears to the word keep. Uh, Middle verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. And now, the second part of verse 15. Keep them from the evil one. So, we saw... In the past, that the idea of us being kept is the idea of guarding, and among other things, kept, treasured, guarded. And so what Jesus is praying here is he's praying that the Father would do something. Father, do not remove them from the world. Father, keep them in the world. Then he says... Keep them from the evil one. Now, some of your translations say evil in the abstract sense, just sin and evil. It is probably best to understand this to mean the evil one referring to the devil, um, as some Bibles do. Now, taken out of context, if you're reading through this and you, you hear Jesus wants us to stay in the world, we're filled with his joy, the world hates us, now it gets even worse because we find out that there's the evil one who's against us, but Jesus prays to keep us from the evil one. You might, you might misunderstand this to think, oh, well, Jesus prays, I'm going to be kept from the evil one. That means there's going to be no harm or hardship that befalls us, that Jesus promises a simple, easy, and abundant life of stuff and no opposition. That's not the context. What does Jesus mean when he says to keep us from the evil one? Now, certainly, your mind might go to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. I think that's included here in what Jesus says. But in the context of John, the Gospel of John, glance back at John 16. Look at verses 1 through 4. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Here, Jesus alerts the apostles. And then as church history shows us, that persecution is not abnormal in the life of a Christian. So when Jesus prays, Father, keep them from the evil one, he is not saying, Father, keep them from persecution. So so what is he saying? Jesus' request that we be kept from the evil one cannot mean a life where the world loves us. He just told, told us they hate us. I think what Jesus prays here is in keeping with what he said back in Matthew 12. 
Matthew 12, verses 26 to 30. He says, If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, another demon name, by, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In Matthew 12, when Jesus says those things, the strong man, in this words that he says, would be Satan. And Jesus has entered this world to bind Satan so that he could plunder his goods. Meaning, when Jesus routed the devil in the desert temptations, then went to the cross and rose, Jesus did something that was not happening in the Old Testament era. Meaning, when Jesus prays that we'd be kept from the evil one, there's many things going on there. Yes, it's keep us from succumbing to sin and temptation. But it also means that the gospel will triumph. And you will not be lost. To be kept from the evil one means that we will no longer be under the sway or power or jurisdiction of Satan and that Satan, those whom he has had, Jesus has bound as the strong man and the gospel will will prevail. So in the Old Testament, God's people were confined to a small piece of real estate in the uh, Near East and or Middle East and he was the in order for a, an unbeliever to become a believer that was to convert to Judaism and join Israel in their covenant with God so in that sense in the old testament the vast majority of the world were unbelievers and stayed unbelievers when Jesus came preached the kingdom lived died rose and ascended poured out his spirit now the God's people are no longer bound to a geographical location. No, armed with the gospel of joy, we go out throughout the entire earth because the strong man is bound and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are being gathered into Christ's church. Ever since the empty tomb and outpouring of the Spirit, the gospel has prevailed across the globe. That means that Satan... Um, remember the first message in this series, God's glory gleams in his election that of saints, which means that there are people who are not yet believers in Turkey and Syria and South Africa and in Macy's coffee shop whom God has elected and will most certainly save. And those people are still under the sway of the evil one, Ephesians 2. They're still following Satan, and yet the gospel will prevail. And so they will not be kept by Satan. They will be kept by the Lord and retaken from Satan and then preserved by the Lord. So to be kept from the evil one, just go back and listen to the first sermon of John 17 here. So this is not a promise of a life free from trouble. In one sense, it's a promise of a life that might have a lot of trouble. But a joy filled, a life filled with gospel joy in the midst of that trouble. That's the connection. Tertullian, in the year 197, said this. We spring up in greater numbers when we are mowed down by you. The blood of the Christians is the seed of a new life. The church in 197 was facing significant persecution. And so Tertullian wrote this to unbelievers, those who were persecuting them, saying that when you kill us, that creates more Christians. When we spring up in greater numbers, when we are mowed down by you, the blood of the Christians is the seed of a new life. What that means then, when Jesus prays that we be kept from the evil one, that means that Satan can never 
have you back. You will never be lost. It means that we are no longer of the enemy. We are no longer of the world system because we are word-filled and not world-filled. And even in the face of opposition and persecution, the Spirit gives us joy. That's what it means to be kept from the evil one. All of that. 1 John chapter 4, verses 4 and 6. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, meaning antichrists who confess Jesus is not from God. Which, by the way, John says that the antichrist is everyone who does not confess that Jesus has come from God. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 1 John 5, 18 and 19. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but Jesus who was born of God, protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So we rifled through those 1 John passages like a commentary on what Jesus says here. Jesus prays that we would be kept from the evil one. Here is a long quote from the 1500s from John Calvin. Reflecting on this, he says, Jesus promises to his disciples the grace of the Father, not to relieve them from all anxiety and toil, but to furnish them with invincible strength against their enemies, and not to suffer them to be overwhelmed by the heavy burden of contests, which they will have to endure. If, therefore, we wish to be kept according to the rule which Christ has laid down, we must not desire exemption from evils or pray to God to convey us immediately into a state of blessed rest, but must rest satisfied with the certain assurance of victory and in the meantime resist courageously all the evils from which Christ prayed to his Father that we might have a happy issue. In short, God does not take his people out of the world because he does not wish them to be effeminate and slothful. But he delivers them from evil so that they may not be overwhelmed for he wishes them to fight but does not suffer them to be mortally wounded. Satan can't have you. Satan can't take away your faith. The world hates us, yet Jesus still has people to save out of the world, just like you and me. And so we have his joy, because only joy in this context can give you the courage to be on mission. Only the certain joy of Jesus' death on the cross, love of the Father, and his current reign can embolden us to go out in the face of a world that hates us and the evil one who's against us, which leads to the last and final point, that's this. Live sanctified in sent, continuing Christ's mission. Our focus here is verse 18, which reads, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus, as God the Son made flesh, had a mission from the Father to live, die, and rise on behalf of our sins and for our salvation. There is a cascade of gospel realities in this prayer. The Father sent the Son. The Father and Son send the Spirit the Father, Son, and Spirit send the church. That's the cascade of gospel mission. God is a missionary 
God. When verse 15 says, when Jesus says, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one, Jesus' will for your life is for you to stay in the world. So, So when I asked at the beginning of this message, why are you still here? Why did Jesus not bring us home? Now we are hearing our Savior's mind because we are supposed to live sent. That's what verse 18 says. A pastor of buddy of mine summarizes verse 18 by saying, live sent. You see, God is a missionary God, and we see that what Jesus prays, I'm going to give you my joy, the world's going to hate you, the evil one's against you, the Father will keep you, now go. Now go. The Father planned the gospel, Jesus performed the gospel, the Spirit applies the gospel, and the church preaches the gospel. Now go. That's what he says. We as a people are to live sent. Not only does the gospel come with a slave's towel, but now, verse 18 shows us that the gospel comes with a script, a map, and a compass. The gospel comes with a slave's towel. That was John 13. And now in John 17, the gospel also comes with a script, map, and compass. So when you are born again... As a new babe in Christ, the Spirit puts a towel on your waist and furnishes you with a script, map, and topo map. We are in the world, but not of the world. And verse indicates that Jesus sends us into the world. And what is the impulse of many? To retreat from the world. The impulse of many is to retreat from the world. The impulse is the exact opposite direction that Jesus sends us. Have you ever thought about that? Now apply that to the whole notion of the rise of monasteries and convents. The impulse in the 300s and beyond when those early desert monastics and more rose, their impulse was the Rome is so dirty I've got to escape the world and go live a pure and holy life in a cave in a rock. I believe the motivation was good, but what does Jesus say in verse 18? Live sent. Go engage. Script, map, and compass. He sends us into the world, not to retreat from the world. The impulse for us to cloister as monks and nuns, Catholic or not, spending all our time with only believers, spending only time in study and prayer, and never at a relational level with unbelievers is the exact opposite direction Jesus sends us. We must protect our life as a church, as Flagstaff Christian Fellowship, that we don't become a Protestant version of a convent and monastery. Because all of our time is spent in these walls with each other and never with anyone else. And you go to work, you go to school. No one knows you're a believer. You never share the gospel with anybody. That is the exact opposite thing Jesus asks us to do. The desire to depart and be with Christ is far better. But he says, live sent. Be engaged. Engage the world. Yes, that includes making disciples. Matthew 28 is still in our Bibles. But to make a disciple means that you also first preach the gospel to an unbeliever who gets saved. And then you begin to disciple them. And then also our ongoing discipleship as a church family. This is why, just as a side application, this is why we as a local church must be ruthless with our church calendar so as to not so populate it with events that we are asking everyone all the time to do so much in the church that you either have no time or you're simply too tired to have your unbelieving neighbor over for dinner or to befriend someone at the gym who you work out with or that you build no relationships with non-Christians So when I said a moment ago that the gospel comes with a script, a map, and a compass, 
The script, of course, is the true story of the world told across the whole Bible, centering on Jesus, God the Son incarnate, living sinlessly in our place, dying for our sins, taking the penalty we deserve, three days buried, resurrected and ascended, and calling everyone to repent of their sins and believe this good news of Jesus so they're rescued from the eternality of hell. That's the script told across the whole Bible. And so if you're here this morning, the chief takeaway that if you're not yet a Christian, but you're thinking about Jesus, you're reading the Bible, you're considering his claims or more, if you're not yet a Christian, the most important thing, this is what you need to hear. Jesus is calling you to turn to him, to turn away and renounce all of your lifestyle and to put on Jesus' lifestyle, beginning with believing that you are a sinner in need of salvation, and Jesus is the only one who can save you because he died on the cross for your sins. Believe that. Confess that in your heart, and you will be saved. Believe that he rose from the grave. That's the script. We go out and we tell people this. Repent and believe the gospel. But I said there's a map and compass. He says lift sent. There's a motion. The Father sends the Son. The Father and Son send the Spirit. The Father, Son, and Spirit send the church. And we go into all the world. So the map and compass then is the geographical priorities that we have of our own Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1. Every church is the center of the world. Did you know that? Every single church now is the center of the world. And from that church, the gospel radiates and reverberates in their Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ends of the earth until it goes around and reverberates across the globe. Question, do you want a day when missionaries have to be sent here because we have failed at our task? Because it's happening in other cities. It's happening in Portland, Oregon, where I came from, and more. Our priority as believers is Flagstaff, northern Arizona, tribal regions, Arizona, to the ends of the earth. Our task to live sent is to live now in this, this, this culture. The mission we have is not one for us to invent we're just continuing Jesus' mission to make disciples. It's not our mission. It's Jesus's. And because we're his body, he continues his mission through us. The difference is Jesus performed the gospel and we proclaim the gospel that he performed. And so we go plant faithful churches to the ends of the earth. We are not monks. We are not nuns. We're not to be a holy huddle nor pew potatoes. We don't have pews anymore, so that can't be us. (laughs) Each and every single one of us, each and every single one of us, we have the same core mission. Matthew 28, make disciples. And at the same time, each one of us has unique gifting. Each one of us has unique providential details in our lives of your skill set, your gifting, your interest, your work, your education, and more. And so we are all different in that sense. And God intends each of us to be on, well, to live sent and sanctified in the truth in the context of each of our lives. Individually and then corporately as a church to live sent. And knowing that Jesus has promised joy in the context of resistance and hate, Because the gospel will always triumph. So to live sent then does not mean that you have to become a professional missionary or a professional church worker. If you if that's if you have any notion in your mind that that's true, well, I'm not moving across the world or I'm not moving somewhere else as a professional missionary, so it's not for me, that's wrong. The call is for all. Nor does it mean to live sent that the call is only for professional uh, missionaries and church staff. It may be this morning that God motivates some of you to go to the ends of the earth, 
or go back to tribal nations or to go back to where you came from to be a minister in your hometown or more. To live sent means you intentionally live your life right where God has placed you in the context and circumstances Jesus has given you and you just be a missionary right there. And you pray about it and you follow the Lord in your household, in your hobbies, with your co-workers, with your classmates, with your friends, your neighbors, your teammates to advance the gospel and more. To live sent means you always have the script, map, and compass in your pocket as you intentionally live your life for Jesus. It's the high schooler or the middle schooler who befriends the kid who seems like an outcast. No one else talks to and they ridicule. It's the retiree who intentionally spends time discipling younger generations. Extending hospitality to young believers. Extending hospitality to unbelievers. It's the retiree who sees the young, struggling family with 2.3 kids across the street and invites them over and loves them and feeds them and talks to them about their marriage and their parenting. It's intentionally choosing pastimes that place you around unbelievers. It's talking to a coworker over lunch about the sermon you heard, wanting to know if they were interested in reading the Bible with you. Jesus says... As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Church, Jesus prays that we are to live sanctified and sent with Jesus' joy in the midst of hate. We're to live sanctified and sent as our Father keeps us from the evil one. And we are to live sanctified and sent, continuing Jesus' mission because it will succeed. God will triumph. The gospel will prevail. Amen? Lord, we love you. And we thank you that we, we know, Lord, that to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, and to depart and be with you is far better. But Paul says in Philippians that it's more needful for us to remain So, Lord, we remain. You keep us here. And every single one of us has the same significant call from you to live sent, fortified with gospel joy in a world that doesn't like us. And yet, just as we were saved out of the world, you have other people to save out of the world. So, Lord, here we are. Use us. Send us, we pray in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen.